Before he left, Neil challenged me to do a, a, a series. I've never done a series before. I don't have the ability to see, to look ahead farther than 15 minutes from now. So I am incapable of preparing a series. You saw this a couple weeks ago when I did the second part of a series I had begun unknowingly a year and a half ago. Today I thought I was doing a topical message, which I've also never done. And as I was working on it this morning, I, I, I thought maybe this is a series. I don't know. We might be doing this for the next five weeks. No, no, we won't because probably Aaron will give birth. You will be given a, a two-week reprieve from me. Uh, Lloyd Grimm, has, uh, one of our elders, has graciously um, taken up the challenge of having a two-week series on hand at any time. So if Aaron, if Aaron begins to go into labor during the sermon, I'm going to leave. I'm going to hand it off. Lloyd's going to come up here and just knock it out of the park. So we're in good hands. Uh, in the academic world, there's always a desire to have a bestseller. It's called the great crossover. It's where the longtime academic brings it down to the language of, of the normal people. And the normal people get to, to step into these heavenly places where the academics live and work. And normal people will flood the New York Times bestseller lists moving some academics' work from the bottom of the heap on Amazon to the very top ten, and, and, the, and, and the, the academic will become a New York Times bestseller, an Amazon Vine bestseller. It's the dream of every academic. The question is, how do you do it? The answer is simple. You lie. There is a great way to get on the bestseller list. It's to tell people that God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. Why does this work so well? Well, it works so well because the idea of happiness is so fluid. When I say happy, I mean one thing and you hear another. And if we don't define our terms and we keep things vague, you could hear almost anything you want in that message. Happiness. And because we are all Americans, is, is EJ still here? EJ is now an American citizen. Just, uh, oh, she's teaching in junior church. That's too bad. EJ is our newest American citizen. She just became one, what, a year ago? Um, so she's now uh, an American citizen as well. Because we are all American citizens, because we know the Declaration of Independence, we know that it is our God-given right to pursue happiness. And that has become ingrained in the American psyche. When you ask foreigners what it is to be American, to be American is to be able to pursue your dreams, whatever they may be. No one can get in your way. So why the bestseller list? Why are we buying these books? Well, because it turns out to be really hard. This pursuit of happiness, this all-consuming attempt to achieve whatever it is, is almost impossible. 
the pursuit of happiness. I don't know how long this is going to go. I promised my father that at about 33 minutes, I'm just going to cut it off. And wherever we are, we're going to pick it up next week. I don't have any clue. I thought that it would be really easy to do the sermon, The Pursuit of Happiness. It turns out there's a lot to say. So 33 minutes, are you counting? You got it on the watch? You just stand up, start waving. All right. What do we mean by happiness? That's the question, right? If you're going to have the bestseller, you need to know what you're talking about. Well, it turns out that in uh, 1988, um, uh, an academic psychologist, Walter Seligman, began a, uh, a new movement in the world of psychology called positive psychology. Ty, are you doing it? Are you setting the time? <laughs> Thank you, Ty. Thank you. Uh, he, he, he set up a new movement in the world of psychology called positive psychology. See, the way that psychology has always worked is we find all the people who don't fit in, who are miserable, who are messed up, and what we do is we think, how can we get this person, and he calls it being at minus five, right? This person is depressed or sad or whatever. If that's minus five. How do we get this person from minus five to zero? That's traditional psychology. So if uh, you're a person, uh, there are many different pathologies that human beings have. Say, for example, if you are... Um, uh, you have psychosomatic illness, right? It's, it's ter- tearing your life apart. The goal of the psychologist is to take you from where you are in a negative place and bring you to normality. Well, Walter was having none of that, and he said, instead, we're going to do positive psychology. We're going to assume that everyone starts at zero, and we're going to figure out how to get them from zero to positive five, right? We're going to take you from where you are and shoot you to the moon, with happiness. And in order to do this, we're going to do it scientifically. So we need to find out what happiness is. We need to quantify it. We need to understand it. We need to, to, to hold it in our hands and, design, and, and check it out and find out what the mark of happiness is. Walter, then, because he's a good academic, he went back into the history of really Greek philosophy and found two basic types of happiness. The first in your note sheet is hedonic happiness. Hedonic, that's uh, H-E-D-O-N-I-C, hedonic. You may have heard of hedonism. Uh, Hedonosmos, or hedone, that's the Greek for pleasure, delight. Uh, It happens a lot, actually, in scripture. Um, God is often delighted in things, and we'll see um, a few uh, passages in a second. But uh, hedonic happiness is about pleasure. It's about um, your individual mental states that happen when you have a pleasurable experience. The classic film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, Mike, you grew up in Chicago, right? I mean, what a town. I was there uh, in November for the Society of Biblical Literature. It's incredible what you can do there. Uh, we were staying downtown, so I had access to, what is it, the Metropolitan Art Institute? Is that right? Yeah, this place is great. They've got uh, my father's all-time favorite painting by George Surratt. He uses the pointillism. Um, I, I think it's a very boring painting, but a lot of people seem to like it. And it's a picture of a lake, and there's some people standing there. I went into the Metropolitan uh, Institute of Art because I didn't want to listen to any more academics talk about nonsense. So I went in there, and I, I, I found it. There's just a crowd of people gathered around this thing. And it's huge. It's massive. And they were just sitting there, just it, like it was, it was glowing, almost. And they were having these incredible experiences as they were looking into the, what? The heart of human experience. 
They were, they were blown away by the way that Surat was able to portray life. Uh, as, I guess impressionism, the whole point is that when, when we look at things, the way we see is often blurred. It's not exact. It's not distinct. And so the impressionist movement as a whole was trying to capture what it's like to be alive in life. They have a, a, a painting there by Degas. And it's, a, it's famous because it's got this horse and it's a horse race, and all four of the hoofs of the horse are off the ground, right? Uh, which seems impossible. How could, you, how could the horse be running if all of its hoofs are off the ground? In fact, this painting, this is, was his impression of a horse race. Degas loved the horse races. This painting uh, became the, the basis of a major bet. I think it was between Leland Stanford and Andrew Carnegie. Uh, and one of them said, no, no, uh, there is actually a point where all four horses' hoofs are off the ground. And the other said, no, that's, that's not the case. And he said, well, we'll make a bet. Whoever, the loser has to, what, make a university, I think? Yeah. Must be nice. <laughs> yeah. And, and so what, what they did is uh, one of them, I don't know who, hired a, a photographer to set up like just it's a, a row of cameras, right? And so as the horse would come by, like, bam, 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 just take kind of like a movie, sort of, what we would do uh, in The Matrix, right? Where they, they kind of did the same thing in, in the movies now. And, and sure enough, there's a frame. Degas was right. There's a frame where all four hoofs are off the ground. And so whichever one the loser was, it, it, I'm not sure if that was Stanford or Carnegie Mellon, but one of those two universities was the result of rich people having fun. Being hedonists, right? That, all the pleasures of life, the steak dinner, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, what does he do that day? It is like the ultimate day. He goes on a big car ride with a Ferrari. He eats at the finest restaurant. He enjoys the Metropolitan Institute of Art. He spends time talking about deep things with his friends from high school. His girlfriend is with him. I mean, everything goes right. It's the perfect day. It is the hedonic day. And if we're honest, I think all of us would like to be a little bit of a hedonist. Pleasure's nice. The meat, the steak, medium rare. The, the Kobe beef that's been massaged for 25 years before slaughtered. The filet right in front of you. You can taste it. It's good. Well, as Christians, though, we think, ah, that's... I, I submit to you that there is such a thing as Christian hedonism. I, I know that there is because you may have heard of John Piper. He's a relatively famous pastor. His uh, first book, his first major book in 1996 was called Desiring God. But the subtitle was Confessions of a Christian Hedonist. What did he mean? Well, John Piper wasn't interested in looking at art. He wasn't looking at um, steak or Ferraris. John Piper thought that there is an experience to be had beholding God. That there is an experience of worship that changes the life, that enriches the life, and a, a, an experience to be had that God wants us to have as we enjoy him. And you can see this in the scriptures if you look, um, for example, at uh, Psalm 119, 14 to 16. I delight in the way of your instruction as much as in all riches. I'll meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I'll delight in your statutes. I'll not forget your word. 
that word delight there in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament is, is the word hedonismos. Uh, that's, that's hedonism. That's, that's the delight. That's pleasure. The idea is that simply meditating, when uh, the word uh, for inst- uh, de- decrees in the New King James, I translate it as uh, instruction, that word refers to Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. And the psalmist, David, is thinking, and he's just meditating on the perfection of the law, knowing that the law itself is an expression of God's good, loving character. And simply to meditate on that, just to, just to, to face and to look at that perfection, that itself is pleasure, pure, unadulterated. Psalm 42, 1-2. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold his face? This thirst to know and be with the creator. To behold the creator's face. To know God's character so completely that we're transcending our normal experience. We become something other than what we are in the face of the one who made us. These are experiences. Experiences that normal people can have. Experiences that when you undertake to have them, you feel really good. And, and John Piper's uh, his whole philosophy, his whole theology is based on the idea that simply pursuing these things is good. This is what God would have us do. God wants us to thirst after himself. Of course, there are problems. You can see what would happen. One of the interesting things, John Piper's book, 1996, Desiring God, it launched in mainstream evangelicalism a movement towards more charismatic, more experience-based worship. Uh, Up until that time, up until the late 80s, early 90s, uh, uh, contemporary mainstream evangelicalism was not able, had not in any way accepted or uh, taken part in the Pentecostal charismatic movement uh, that began in Azusa Street in 1906. Those, they were two separate streams. With the advent of John Piper and his movement, the, the idea that we could, in worship, in singing, in prayer, in communion, that we could begin to have this transcendent experience, that started to cross over into mainstream contemporary evangelicalism to the point that now the songs that we sing very often are the same songs that are sung in charismatic Pentecostal congregations. There's a price, though. As with normal hedonism, there are dangers. What if Ferris took a day off every day? What if the desire for that steak and that Ferrari and that art became so all-encompassing that he rejected everything else in his life? What if it consumed him? What if he became addicted? That's the danger of of the hedonist. The hedonist has to work very hard to make sure that the pleasures of life don't overcome, don't addict us. So it is, I think, with Christian hedonism. 
if all we seek is experience, well, think of the pressure on the pastor. Right. There's a pastor in the Midwest, uh, and he, in the early 2000s, began this church. And, like, overnight, this church went from four people to, you know, almost a thousand. Literally within a space of about three months, he went from zero to a thousand, right? And so he writes uh, about the experience of what this was like. Why was it so popular? It was all about him. This guy was awesome. He, wow, he had such great, there was one uh, sermon that he did where while he was doing the sermon, he invited local artists to come up and they were, it was on video, on, on a screen, it was showing what they were drawing, how they were responding to his words as he was saying them so that the sermon itself became multi-sensory. You weren't just hearing it, you weren't just looking at him, you were experiencing art as you did it. This guy during uh, Easter for Palm Sunday brought in a goat had the congregation watch, they all held out their hands, and he put his hand on the goat, like literally did the Day of Atonement thing, turned into a scapegoat, said, God, our sins are on this goat, and he sent the goat out. I mean, every single Sunday, it was more and more awesome. He was doing things that no one had ever done. And one day he comes in, and in between services, because he had to have two, he got into a, a closet and just began shaking. Because he was thinking, each week has to be better than last. It's all on me. Because if these people don't go out feeling this feeling that they're having, they'll leave. Maybe they'd become too hedonistic. There's danger in seeking only experience. But there's also danger in not seeking any experience at all. If God really is the God of the universe, the one of whom the psalmist says, as the deer longs for flowing water, my soul longs for you, O God. For of whom David can say, simply meditating on the perfection of your law is enough for me. If that is God, then we have to find the middle ground. We must have experience, but we must not depend or become addicted to experience. A second type of happiness Walter Seligman, 1988, publishes his book, Positive Psychology. He's going to do a scientific understanding of happiness. The first type of happiness is hedonic happiness. The second type is eudaimonic happiness. That's E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C. Eudaimonic. He takes this from the philosopher Aristotle. Loosely translated, I think the best translation in English would be flourishing. Flourishing. Human flourishing. And on your note sheet, I've said... That eudaimonic happiness is the practice of virtues within the context of a community. Well, Walter wasn't the only fan of Aristotle. There are others, one of whom was Thomas Jefferson. You may remember him from the Declaration of Independence. Oh, John, just so, John Varela. Okay, a couple weeks ago, I had an illustration, right? And I just kind of threw it out there. Oh, yeah, Winston Churchill said, John raises his hand in the back. He's like, not true. Just, just train wrecked the sermon. <laughs> He's like, no, I saw a documentary on that. Everything you're saying is false. Okay. So, John, I want you to know that this time I only went to academic journals. I'm solid. I'm Teflon. You can't get me. Thomas Jefferson, he writes, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our current context, what, what do we think that means? We think that means seeking after fun, right? 
Who's seen that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness? They spelled H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S, starring Will Smith. Happiness. What is that movie about? It's supposed to be heartwarming. I found it terribly depressing. Why? Because the whole point of the movie is that happiness comes from having a lot of money. He's destitute. He's in poverty. He wants a better life for his son. So what's the only thing to do? Well, become an investment banker. That's going to solve all your problems. I was waiting for the point in the movie where, I don't know, doing the work that he was doing made him feel better about things. Nope, never happens. He hates his job, he hates his life, but you know what? He becomes rich. Pursuit of happiness. If you watch that film, you should be depressed too. Well, there's actually a big scholarly debate about what the pursuit of happiness means in our Declaration of Independence. In uh, 1951... Hold on, John. I'm looking at my notes. Howard Mumford Jones, 1952, I'm sorry, did a historical understanding of happiness in the the late 1700s, 1776. And what he found was that happiness was not what we tend to associate with happiness, pleasure, right? Happiness, in fact, had been a substitute for a a phrase in John Locke's philosophy. John Locke said that the purpose of government is, is to protect life, liberty, and property, right? The purpose of government is life, liberty, and property. Uh, uh, and what that was part of was a belief that the complete life, the complete life included the working of land, having your own land that no one could touch, and, and working a part of it. This is actually shared in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. This is the assumption of, Le- of Leviticus, that a full, shalom-shaped Hebrew life includes having your own parcel of land that you work. Well, John Locke has two basic understandings of what happiness is. The first is property and working the land. The second is psychological happiness, the the happiness that comes uh, from being secure, safe, having prosperity, right? Where does John Locke get these ideas from? Aristotle, eudaimonia, flourishing. The idea that the good life, we might say, The life where you're successful, you're protected, you have money for leisure, and most importantly, you're virtuous. You're good. Aristotle would have understood virtue to include things like courageous, honest, um, a person of integrity, a person who's upstanding. In fact, in Aristotle, it's important to be a prominent member of the community. Because for Aristotle, the flourishing life cannot happen on your own. There's no, there's no life that's flourishing on its own. You have to be embedded in a community. For Aristotle, that was the polis, the city. For us, it's the church. Part of the good life, the eudaimonic happiness, is to, be, is to have a, a life where you are a good person in a good community, where everyone is successful, where everyone is moving forward, uh, doing the important things in their life. Mumford Jones argues that this is the idea of happiness that Thomas Jefferson had when he penned the uh, Declaration of Independence. There's actually good reason to believe this. His good friend George Mason, they were both country gentlemen from uh, Virginia, I believe, and they would, they would sit on, uh, at Monticello on the porch and they would, they would sip tea and, and, and talk about important philosophy. Well, just a few months before the Declaration of Independence is written, George Mason has a letter to Thomas Jefferson. And in it, he says, what's the purpose of government? Security, property, safety, success. He just names all of these things. So Jefferson, because as John Adams, we know, John Adams said that Jefferson had a particular felicity 
with words. He just kind of cut all that down to happiness. In 1964, Arthur Schlesinger did an academic study of the word pursuit and found out that pursuit is not chasing after, it's not seeking after, no, it is practice. Uh, this is like we would say the pursuit of law or the pursuit of medicine. So what Jefferson had in mind was the practice of a full, happy, flourishing life. I would submit to you that there's such a thing as Christian eudaimonia as well. We might even see it in the beginning of Job. Job 1, when we find out what Job's life looks like, it says, There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He's good, he's virtuous. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Five, that's a lot, wow. At the height of his, of his farming, ranching, I think my grandfather only had like 30. Not, not eudaimonic, not happy. Very many servants, so that this man was greatest of all the people in the East, successful, flourishing, embedded in a community. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn. They would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Thirteen. Thirteen cows he killed after every party. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. <laughs> this is what Job always did. Happiness. He's got it. Successful, wealthy, good man, fears God. He's got it all. Been in the community. Wait a minute. This is a Bible church. We have to, we have to look at a passage. On your note sheets, uh, Luke 6, Luke six twenty two to 23. Actually, let's skip that one and go to Acts 5. Acts 5, 40 to 42. Here's the scene. Uh, this is the early church. Peter and the apostles have been preaching in front of the temple, and the uh, Jewish authorities are very upset. So first, they throw Peter and his friends into prison. Publicly, they just toss them in. An angel of the Lord comes and releases them. They go right back to preaching, because that's what the angel of the Lord suggests that they do. The next thing that happens, the Jewish leaders get upset again. And they come and they have, well, we'll see. The Jewish leaders agreed with Gamaliel. He's a famous rabbi. He shows up in the Mishnah. And when they had called for the apostles and had them flogged in public, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that God had honored them by allowing them to be shamed for the name we might read uh, the name of Jesus. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Thrown in jail, whipped. I have those in, uh, in italics or in brackets. Had them flogged in public. Uh, it, it's difficult to say what the Greek means. It could be either beaten or flogged. Um, the suggestion, I think, in Luke is that whatever was happening, it was done publicly. It was very shameful which is what he points out um, in verse 41. When I, where I have, God had honored them by allowing them to be shamed. Uh, the New King James, which has a very literal translation, says something to the effect of, um, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering shame for the name. Now Luke's using right there, counted worthy, it's passive voice, right? He's using what's called a divine passive, where he's 
if you, uh, if you know the scriptures, you know that, that he's talking about something God has done. God has looked down on these people and he said, I've counted you worthy. I, I'm going to honor you in a way right now. I'm going I'm to lift you up. But what does that lifting up look like? It looks like jail. It looks like whippings. These people aren't very happy, or they shouldn't be. When was the last time you were in jail and you were whipped? And you were thinking, yes! I got it! I finally achieved it! I've been working all my life so hard to get to the top, and finally now I understand happiness as I've never understood it before. Please, throw me in prison some more. This is great! Oh, I... What I really need is a good beating. Just really lay into me, fellas. Rejoicing! This isn't eudaimonia. This isn't hedonic happiness. This is the opposite of those things. This would be as if all these terrible things happened to Job and he looked at him and said, Yes! Thank you. What is going on here in the scriptures? What kind of happiness is this? Well, Luke Acts, we can read them as, as two parts of the same story. Yes, uh, we begin with Luke, the first chapter, the, the chapter that involves Jesus and Jesus' ministry on earth, his death and resurrection. And the second half, the beginning of the church, as the church takes the message of the gospel um, to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And look what Jesus says in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, often called the Sermon on the Plain. Luke 6, 22 to 23 in your notes. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man, you might say, my name's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy! For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. The apostles weren't out to get thrown in jail. They don't, no one likes jail, no one likes being whipped, beaten. But after it had happened... They were getting out and they were probably sort of reflecting on what had just gone on. We just, we just got sent to jail. An angel set us free. Then they got us again and beat us, almost as if the angel had saved us so that we could get hurt more. What's going on? And then they hear maybe the teaching of Jesus ringing in their ears. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven. And what they're doing to you is no different than what they did to the prophets. And we might even read, to me. These are the same things that happened to Jesus. These are the same things that happened to the prophets. You're in line with a tradition of people who have served God in a certain way. The prophet Isaiah calls out the suffering servant, speaking both of Israel and of Christ. Saying, behold my suffering servant. Wounded for you. Look at what happens when I take 
the world's judgment and shame and destruction, and I put it on somebody, I can do amazing things. I can set people free. I can cleanse sin. I can bring hope and justice to the world through these things. This has happened with the prophets. We read in uh, 4 Maccabees, the same thing happened to uh, the, the set of seven brothers who, who um, rebel against Antiochus Epiphanes, and all seven are tortured to death. And each one of them goes down rejoicing and praising God, trusting that there will be resurrection, and trusting that their death will not be in vain. The same thing happens to Jesus, who proclaims and brings with him the kingdom of God, healing the sick, setting the captives free. And what happens to him? Crucified. But through that, God takes away the sin of the world, institutes a new paradigm, a new order, a new justice, a new righteousness, in and through this man's suffering. The disciples look back at that, and they think, we're a part of that too. Their backs hurt, they're probably hungry, their jaws are a little bit unhinged, but they think we're a part of something that is much bigger than we are. And they rejoice because they have eschatological happiness. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Eschatological happiness. The eschaton is it's the Greek word that we talk about for the end. When the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom once and for all. And we who live in the meantime waiting. We live in between this world and the eschaton. We, leave, we live in between now and the full realization of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not absent. It is wherever we are. It is wherever we proclaim the name of the risen Lord. It is wherever we take care of the widows and the orphans. It is wherever we minister in the name of Jesus Christ as our brothers and sisters are ministering in Haiti as we speak. That is having one foot in this world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And when you are there, when you're straddling these two worlds, maybe even leaning into the kingdom a little bit, when you are there, you have or you can partake in eschatological happiness because you can be a part of the upside-down world where shame and beatings and sufferings are not just pointless, but they are a part of ultimate redemption. You get to be a part of the process by which God redeems the world. You participate. And as you do, you suffer shame. You suffer beatings. You take your licks. But when you're done taking your licks, you look back and you say, as they did with the prophets, as they did during the time of the Maccabees, as they did with Jesus Christ himself, as they did ultimately with the apostles, so they do with me. This isn't pointless. It's interesting that Job, when he's suffering, he often says things like, what's the point, God? What, <laughs> what are you trying to prove? Okay, you've taken everything away from me. I have nothing left. I'd rather die than be here enduring this any longer. 
What are you trying to prove? We read that story. We know the context that God has said, look at my servant Job. And the devil looks at him and says, okay, the only reason he's so happy is because he's got eudaimonic happiness. You take away his eudaimonic happiness, his hedonic happiness, and he'll just waste away. We look at that, and we see Job's faithfulness in the midst of it, and we find courage and comfort when we don't understand our own suffering. Job didn't know it, but what he endured has blessed the faithful Jews and Christians throughout the millennia. Job's suffering had a point, even though he never saw it. His suffering was in line with the prophets and the the time of the Maccabees and Jesus Christ and the apostles and those who suffer now. So I've been um, more or less a pastor now for a month And people ask, you know, how's it going? (laughs) I don't know, it's going. Um, I think think I've learned something in this last month. I've learned how much pain and how much hurt there is in just a small group of people. And you have to remember, I don't even hear all of the things that go on. Many of you suffer in silence. What I do hear blows my mind. How can there be this much hurt? How can there be this much shame? in such a small community. And how can we find happiness in the middle of that? See, the problem with hedonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness is that those are context-dependent. If your church falls apart, you can't have flourishing If you don't have money and you're not really good at lying like Ferris Bueller, you can't have hedonic happiness. Those things can be taken from you at any time. Aristotle even says, he says, this is the best way to live. But you know something? There are no guarantees. Ultimately, no matter how hard you practice the virtues, no matter how deeply you embed yourself in a community, it can all just be taken away. He says, you know what the biggest tragedy is? Drowning. He says, no matter how rich you are, if you fall off a boat, you're done. How can we be happy in the middle of all of this? We can see ourselves in a tradition that outlasts us in a tradition that will find its culmination in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he gathers his church to himself and there is no more sorrow. And when we do that, we can, what does the Lord say? Rejoice and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets.
Friends, many of you right now are in the midst of hedonic bliss. Uh, you, hearing, hearing a wonderful sermon like this one, you just can't help but have your soul elevated, transcended before God, and you are in the midst of hedonic bliss. Others, brothers and sisters, are in the midst of eudaimonic bliss. Your life is a success. Everywhere you, ha- everywhere you look in your life, there is flourishing. You've cultivated the virtues, the Christian virtues. You are living the good life. And others of you have been crushed by this world. To all of you, I say this. You are the church. Together, you are a complete body that is being carried into the next life. For those of you who are enjoying uh, a kind of Christian hedonism, remember that there will be a time that the Christian hedonism is not available to you and be ready for that. For those of you who are enjoying eudaimonic Christianity, and have been blessed beyond all measure. Know that it can be taken away from you, and that what you can do with your eudaimonic happiness is to bless others through it. You've been given much so that you can bless others. And for those of you who are crushed, look at your life and say, he found me worthy to endure this. God looked down, and of all the people, he picked me to be the one who suffers like the prophets, who suffered like Christ, who suffers like the apostles, and whose reward will be great in heaven. And as a family, we will bless each other, all three of these categories. We will bless each other knowing that we are unified by the Holy Spirit and that we have the bond of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will bless us with the right kinds of happiness. That we will be practitioners of happiness and not pleasure seekers. That you will bless us with transcendent experiences of your worship. That you will give us the flourishing of life as we succeed and cultivate the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And God, we pray that some of us you will find worthy, that you will honor us with the shame of suffering, that in so doing we will follow your son, endure it with good cheer, knowing that in the end your kingdom will come and that you are redeeming the world through us. God, you are a happy God, and we pray that we will partake in that happiness. In Jesus' name, amen.